Are you roll? Actually, wait. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should actually fill us both up. I did. I would like a little more. <laughs> And I'm Jessica. And this is The The Greatest greatest Genre, referring, of course, to fantasy romance. Oh, yeah. Outlander, Twilight, The Vampire Diaries. Think Blood and Ash, Shadow and Bone. And most importantly, the exhaustive works of Sarah J. Mass. I think you mean Her Majesty. Her Majesty Sarah J. Mass, affectionately known as SJM. We have read every single book in the SJM universe. We love them so much and we cannot wait to relive them and discuss them here with you on this podcast. That is right. We cannot wait to dive into everything from fairies to fan art. And it's all going to happen right here in my living room on these two sofas. (laughs) And we're going to talk through A Court of Thorns and Roses, henceforth known as Akatar, Chapters 1 through 5. Mm-hmm. And the first half of this and every episode is going to be devoted just to those chapters. We will be dissecting all of the events as they unfold, getting into character development, world building, everything that is happening within those chapters. Yes, and then the second half is going to be devoted to the wider SJM universe. That means everything here will be on the table. Spoilers. <laughs> Fan theories. Spoilers abound. Oh yeah, and arguments, most importantly, about which fictional fae is the hottest. Mm, Yes. And speaking of lusting (laughs) after fictional men, a reminder that The Greatest Genre will feature adult content, some adult language. We all know what goes down in the barn with Isaac Hale. There is literally hay everywhere. Uh, we will do our best to keep things PG-13, but you should know that Jessica and I do tend to get carried away, especially when drinking this delightful Argentine Malbec. A final vibe check before we begin. A reminder to please keep things kind, keep things friendly. One of the things we love the most about this community is how positive it is. We would really like to keep it that way, and we're just so excited to be contributing to it in any way that we can. Yes, and also, just remember, you literally cannot make fun of us any more than we already make fun of ourselves. Can't do it. Well, I suppose maybe they could, but there's, you know, there's no need. Absolutely no There's need. just no need. Isabel. Jessica. Are you ready for our first episode? I was born ready. I'm so excited. I know, me too. All right. Let us go over the wall into Prithian and venture through chapters one to five of A Court of Thorns and Roses. Let's do it. So, to begin, we are going to have Jessica run through the chapter 1 through 5 summary of Akatar. Would you like to take it away, Jess? Absolutely. For those of you who did not do your required reading before this episode, <laughs> here we go. Chapter 1. Feyre, our heroine, is out in the woods, much too close to the Prithian border, I might add. She's being naughty. <laughs> hunting because her family is on the brink of starvation. She spots a deer and is about to take the shot when a huge wolf appears. Feyre has a brief but very high-stakes internal debate about whether or not the wolf is actually a fairy, ultimately decides to take the chance and shoot the wolf with an arrow made of ash, and then sends another arrow through his eye, killing it but not before making eye contact with the beast, during which she feels for a moment that he sees her. She skins the wolf, takes the pelt and the deer home, and is determined to leave the whole encounter behind her in the forest, focusing only on the fact that tonight her family will not go hungry. Yeah, what an opening. <laughs> what, an, what an introduction to our girl, Pharaoh. 
Chapter 2 brings Feyre home. She arrives with her kill and the pelt. Her sisters react with apathetic entitlement. Her father at least seems concerned that she put herself in harm's way, but Feyre reminds him that she simply did what was necessary to keep them all alive. The family eats a full meal for the first time in many days. We then have a pretty nasty exchange kickoff between Feyre and Nesta when Nesta brings up a boy in the village that she claims is going to propose to her. Elaine makes some feeble attempts at playing peacemaker, but to no avail. The chapter closes with Farah's father telling her that hope is just as essential as bread and meat and urges her to let her sisters hope for a better life, a better world. To which Farah responds, there is no such thing. Are you making fun of my quoting? No, I love your quoting. I just, I'm literally cackling internally, and I guess maybe a little externally about the fact, this is just such a tough look for Farrah's sisters when you first meet It them. is, and we'll I get know there. I'm going to get into it. We'll get it, there, but, but I have three more chapters to get through. I am so sorry. I will, I promise I'll be quiet. <laughs> like, I promise 80% I'll be quiet. Okay. <laughs> Chapter three. Farrah goes to the market to sell her veil. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any just go with it? Sorry. Sorry, Dolph Lundgren came out. I actually typed that in my notes. To sell I her love it. Anyway, so Farah goes to the market to sell the pelts <laughs> with her sisters. On the way, they have a slightly disturbing encounter with the Children of the Blessed, a cult of people who worship the High Fae as their divine masters. <clears throat> The Acolyte tries unsuccessfully to preach to the Archeron sisters, and they continue on down the road. Feyre ends up doing business with a mercenary she has never seen before. She's surprised by the woman's generosity and deeply unsettled by the warning about the fairy attacks that have been happening in human villages. They part ways, and Feyre gives her sisters a little bit of money before sneaking off to shag Isaac Hale in the barn. We warned you it was coming. And there's hay everywhere. We can only assume. We are then brought back to the cottage where the spirits are much improved from the night before. Bellies are full. There is a brief moment of ease and contentment, actually, before it is all shattered when a massive horned beast bursts into the cottage. Chapter 4. The beast, whose feline body, wolfish head, and elk-like antlers strike terror into the entire Archeron family, accuses them of murder and furiously demands to know who killed the wolf. He then explains, with no shortage of disdain for mortals, that the treaty between Prithian and mortal lands demands a life in return for the death of the wolf, who was, in fact, Fay. Feyre confesses to the murder, and then asks that the beast kill her outside instead of in her home in front of her family. The beast then explains that the life can be repaid by Feyre coming to live in Prithian, as opposed to just her dying. He says that she would be granted permission to live on his lands. Feyre accepts the terms, bids her family goodbye. Her father's final words to her are that if she should ever escape, she should never come back. Just pretty... Very tough. That's pretty brutal. Chapter 5, Feyre journeys to the wall. We don't know much about that journey because she is magically drugged to sleep by the beast. (laughs) Shortly after they leave the cottage because she's asking him questions. Tough look for the beast. Yeah, not great. So she passes out and wakes up as they pass through the gates into Prithian. And that is where chapter five ends? That is how it ends. Is everybody still with us? (laughs) I'm still with you. Okay, where do we start to unpack this? I actually, I think 
it would be good for us to sort of discuss the world that we're in, right? I think that's a great idea. Okay. So as in every great fantasy novel, it all begins with a map. So we're going to throw the map up so you should see it on your screen. I just kind of want to start with um, saying this is a little bit like the UK to you. I feel like just every, a bit. I feel like every single fantasy book that I read has a map that looks strangely like the United Kingdom. I mean, Westeros also. I just had to look at this. I'm like, that's Highburn over there, which is literally the Republic of Ireland. That makes the Night Court Scottish Highlands, doesn't it? And I can't help but think of Jamie Fraser. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that SJM has definitely read Outlander. Oh, 100%. Like, for sure. So I think it looks like the Day, Dawn, and Night Court would all be Scotland. And Highburn is Island and Northern <laughs> Island. SJM, please explain yourself. What is the spring course? This, and England is the spring course because we're all pasty. The spring and summer court are also Wales. Ah. How's your how's your how's your knowledge of Great Britain, Jessica? I'm not. It, it would. Um. <laughs> I don't think it's as good as I There's no comment till now. <laughs> and so it looks like we have the solar courts versus the seasonal courts. And yes, can you explain? Can you actually spell that out for everyone really quickly? So seasonal courts are obviously spring, autumn, winter, summer. And they are all in what looks like the southern hemisphere of Britain. Yes. And then we've got the solar courts, which are day, dawn, and night. And there is a very a rather large mountain. Yes, we are separating <laughs> the the seasonal courts and the solar courts. But the most important thing here, I think, to just take away is that a Prithian really dominating the real estate here. I mean, the mortal lands is just basically it's just, nothing. It seems a little weird to me that, like, okay, look to the right of this map. And I know. This massive, I mean, this is what Europe is. Like, I just have a question. Why did they decide to keep this puny little sliver of land at the bottom of Perfian? Listen, I don't know, mortal? I don't know why anybody would live here. Like, two out of ten would I want to live where Feyre lives. Yeah, and that also kind of transitions us into the beginning of chapter one, which is what we start talking about Feyre's actual surroundings mm -hmm. in the forest. Yeah. And boy, is it tough. No, transitioning from the, the macro sort of world-building introduction into the micro, SJM paints a very, very clear picture right away and that Feyre's world is harsh. It is bleak, It's man. really, really harsh. But what I love about it is that it still feels like high fantasy. You feel like you have that filter over the camera like they do in Lord of the Rings where everything mm. is just a little bit sparkly. And like soft, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And I really like that intro into the chapter. And it's also interesting that she is, she's alone, right? Mm -hmm. We meet her in this moment where there's no one else around. She is very alone with her thoughts. And it kind of mirrors the isolation that she feels, I think, day to day, no matter where she is. But in yeah. this moment, it is just her and the forest and you. Yeah, and like her survival, and mm -hmm. that is another theme that weighs so heavily throughout these first five chapters, is that like, it is a constant battle just to stay alive. Yes, I think that's another theme here in this world, is survival. 
you know, she's battling the elements, she's battling things like starvation to stay alive, but you're also hearing kind of right away about how much they fear the Fae, and they're living in fear of the Fae coming and attacking them and just wiping out villages. So it feels like they're just always on the brink of some sort of devastation. It's very intense. It is really intense. And also, the whole encounter with the wolf, this is like the event that catapults us into the rest of this story. It's the catalyst for everything that happens afterwards. Yeah, and so I love that at the beginning of Akatar, it is just her solo. Mm -hmm. You get all of her thoughts, and you get this initial hatred, like with the Fae, and Mm -hmm. it really paints a pretty, let's say, accurate picture of what the relationship is like between those two populations. They are terrified of fairies. They are terrified of fairies. That is definitely made very clear. And the way, it's actually, it's funny, the way that they talk about the fairies when I was first reading the chapters, and in the, this chapter specifically, it the way they describe them actually made me think of vampires. Interesting. More than like fae. I thought of elves. El, like Tolkien, yeah, like Tolkien, Elven, and maybe it was because I was just coming off of like I always rewatch Lord of the Rings in the winter, and I think we started mm. these in February of 2022. Yes, and so, that makes sense. Yeah, and so I think that I had like Legolas and in my head, and Elrond and Galadriel, and I was just thinking that they were very tall Elvish beings. I totally see that, and I I think now that is definitely how I imagine them. But when I was when they were first being described in the books, the way they were talking about how they were they were tall, lethal. There was all these references to them eating humans, very predatorial. Oh yeah, like deadly, eerie. Yes, that it gave, it very much gave me the Cullens or like the vampires in the Vampire Diaries. Oh yeah, kind of a vibe. Expanding more on this relationship between the Fae and the mortals. We did kind of get introduced in these first five chapters to a bunch of, like, rules, so to speak. Like, you always have the rules Mm. in your fantasy books. Like, so we think we know that Ash kills fairies. She She killed this wolf with an ash... So she shot two arrows. The Mm -hmm. first arrow she shot was an ash arrow, and it went into its side. Mm. And then she fired a second one that went directly through its eye. But that's a really good point to make, because there are always rules. You know, every magic system has its own set of rules, Uh right? And so what we have to stay consistent with them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what we think we know from these, from chapter one, is that ash is lethal to fairies. We also have learned that they don't like iron, allegedly. Allegedly. And then that they can't lie. And that they cannot lie. Feyre goes out of her way to say a lot, or SJM goes out of her way to write down that, you know, fairies can't lie. Yes. But I think it's also important to know, she doesn't explicitly say this, SJM, she doesn't write this down, but to me, it seems like most of this is more, almost more superstition. You know, because it's been so long. Since any of them have had an actual interaction with a fairy. Right. It's less history then it is becoming Conjecture. myth. Mm. Oh, you know? I like that. It's very mystical. It is very mystical. Everyone's feeling very superstitious about it. And I think also with that superstition, it's like when when things have happened so long ago, so we know there was this ancient battle, and I think the quote is, it was so bloody it took six queens to make a treaty. Right? There was this yes. gargantuan event that there, happened. It was an uprising because the humans used to be slaves mm-hmm. to the high fae. And... Basically, what eventually happened was all of the humans rose up against being enslaved, 
And some of the Haifei actually fought with them. So it was this massive war to liberate human beings from servitude to the Haifei. But I think that the fact that it happened so long ago, it's almost Again, like, it's, it's shrouded in myth now. Yeah. And so it's less history than it is myth at this point. And so all of these little pieces of history that have filtered mm-hmm. down have now become superstitions, essentially. I will say, one of the things I did notice reading these five chapters was that it felt a little bit like it was rushed, this introduction into the tension between there's a lot of context for context's sake i think which is a tough thing Mm -hmm. to to get around when you're in the first couple of chapters of a fantasy series i think because the world building is so important and you do need to understand the rules and the landscape in which your characters Mm -hmm. are living yeah and i guess i mean i would rather hear about the character development a lot more in the first couple of chapters Mm -hmm. And then once I know the characters more, then I understand why that internal dialogue is telling me certain things, rather Mm. than I felt in the first five chapters of this, the internal dialogue, I I didn't understand why she was giving me all this information, because I didn't really know her yet, you know? Mm. And it's not necessarily things she would have been thinking thinking about about while she was was hunting. hunting. She wouldn't be recounting the history of her land to herself. Yeah. And I'm not saying, That's like, I, and I appreciated the the context I did. Mm-hmm. I do think that she does better of, better in later books of not doing that. She shows, doesn't tell. And in this first five chapters, I felt like sometimes she was telling me, not showing me. I think she does a really good job introducing new characters. I think she has yeah. such an incredible way I of bringing a new wait. character onto the so scene. So should we talk about when she goes home and we kind of yes. meet her family? Yes, let's episode. do the family Archeron introductions. <laughs> this family it's time. <laughs> this, oh, this episode, hello Malbec, is literally <laughs> meet the family. Yeah. And we get a lot out of our first scene with Vera and Nesta and Elaine mm. and their father. Yes. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Because I got some things to say. <sighs> I, I, I will go first, actually. Okay. <laughs> and I would like to start with Feyre, because she is the first character that we meet in these chapters, and she is the most important character throughout this entire book. Yes. And I was just so struck by the introduction to her I think mostly, to be fair, because I was rereading it, and now knowing how her journey unfolds, which of course we're not going to discuss during this portion, Mm -hmm. but we will discuss it later, I was just struck by how apathetic she is. And it made me so sad, because I realized how isolated she is. And I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the macro and the micro view of the world that we're dropped into. In that micro view of her surroundings, she is so isolated. She is so alone in this forest. But as she comes home to this place, you know, home is supposed to be a place of comfort, a place where you feel safe. And I realized she, she comes home and she is just as alone and just as isolated as she was in the woods. Can you imagine that? Coming home when you're 19... After she's the youngest, to, she she's the, the youngest, youngest member of this is a family. Very important note: trying to feed your entire family, being out in the cold, being able to count your ribs, killing something like you had a she day. She skinned it. And she then, killed it and skinned and it. And then when you come home, yuck! And you are basically met with 
on Nesta's side with Venom and on Elaine's side with... I don't even know what word you can use for what you're getting from Elaine. I have a lot... You can do Nesta's intro because I have some things to say about Elaine Argeron. Coming back to Feyre, being the youngest member of the family and this burden of their survival is on her shoulders and she took it on because on her mother's deathbed... We need to unpack this, actually, for a second. I hate her mom. What? What I'm sorry. That? What the fuck? Yeah. Big woof. It just paints her entire family and, like, her mom in a super unflattering light. Elaine and Nesta as ungrateful. Her father as useless, to be frank. Like, mm-hmm. I know that he has limited use of his legs, but... Yes. There's still a way to be a father without physically being able to help. Totally agree. You can emotionally support your kids. This is a quote that I pulled from chapter two that really stuck with me. I've long since given up hope of them actually noticing whether I came back from the woods every evening. That is so sad. Sarah is a very fragmented character in these first five chapters. She is very, very isolated. She is very apathetic. She has completely shut herself off from feeling anything really she's depressed she's completely depressed and i want to go back again to this the vow that she made to her mother so on her mother's deathbed her mother makes her swear to her Mm. to stay together and look after them which again first of all like just a very uncool thing to do to your youngest child and Feyre takes this vow very, very seriously because she says in this world where the gods were long forgotten and there's no religion, a promise is your vow. It is, it is sacred. Yeah, and she, it's currency. And she made this promise to her mother and it is the only thing that she holds on to every day. And I think that's a really important thing to remember about her as the next couple of chapters and even the rest of the whole story yeah and I'm glad that you said that because at first when I was rereading these chapters I was almost irritated at Farah. I remember the first time reading it Mm -hmm. being like why does she not have a spine and she just accepts the behavior of her family and how they speak to her and rereading it I was like that is not a fair assumption to make when you are beaten down like that like physically outside every day like in the elements yes and then you come home and you are emotionally beaten down there's a point where you become exhausted and so i i kind of just turns it off yeah i kind of shut it all out a 180 on feyre when i was rereading this and i and i just really appreciated and felt for her in these first five chapters let's dive into the sisters talk to me about nesta off the bat nesta her intro is one of the cruelest, most predatorial, hateful intros I, think I have ever seen. Like, she is mean. This line that I wrote down, this is the first descriptor we get of Nesta. Oh my god, give it to me. I'm Nesta, so quote, who had been born with a sneer on her face, mm-hmm. end quote. Yikes. A queen without a throne. Like, That's she another good proud. one. Nesta is proud, and this is like I have goosebumps. Yeah. You read these lines about Nesta, and I am scared of her. I'm I don't so want to. I don't want her to look at me in any kind of way. No, she's scary, and she's the oldest. And I'm sorry, but eldest sisters are the backbone of society. And even though Nesta is not being the backbone of this family, 
there is just always a certain vibe that comes with the eldest sister, and you do not cross them. Not <laughs> coming from two oldest siblings <laughs> of their families. She's angry, bitter, and spiteful. And very bitter. Lots of, I mean, she's dripping with just, just nasty. Yeah, she's not, you know what she is? She's a mean, nasty girl. She is nasty. She is nasty. Mm-hmm. And not in an Isaac Hale in the barn kind of way. No, not nasty. <laughs> but good, if you ask me. <laughs> so should we pivot to Elaine? We She's have, kind. We... She's nice. She's just a bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> that. I'm looking at your, your quote here that you have written down. Hold on, I'm going to gonna read everyone. it. You have to tell it to everyone. Quote, Elaine just sometimes didn't grasp things it wasn't meanness that kept her from offering to help it simply never occurred to her that she might be capable of getting her hands dirty end quote Woof. and it continues quote i'd never been able to decide whether she actually didn't understand that we were truly poor or if she just refused to accept it. I mean, it's just very tough. It's one of those things where, <laughs> yes, everything we hear about Nesta is like, wow, you are angry and you are mean and you are scary. But I would rather have that than than what we've got with Elaine Well, because here. with Elaine, it almost seems like a void of personality or character or something. Like, at least Nesta, she may be a bitch, but she's fun to read about, I guess. She's witty and she's sharp and she doesn't miss anything. Like, she's very, very aware of their situation. And she is aware of the fact that she's doing nothing to help. And that is just fine with her. And and scary. And scary. And Elaine is just like, what? Is that? No, that, that's what it is. She's, what? What? <laughs> what? That's, yeah, that's Elaine for you in a sentence. But So I noticed something else I was rereading to prep for mm-hmm. this episode. There's a third quote, and it says, Feyre admits that she has a soft spot for Elaine because Elaine is so helpless, and she says that she would buy flower seeds to bring back for Elaine to, to plant in their garden. And I stopped, and I thought to myself, Excuse me. You all are starving. The seeds that you're buying for a garden that has tillable soil that will grow things are for flowers? And not for like... And not for like a potato? you can grow. And potatoes are very resistant. I really, really think that that was a huge missed opportunity by the Archeron family <laughs> and Elaine in particular, because if Elaine likes to play in the dirt and grow things, like, grow a freaking root vegetable. It's very tough. Help yourself. Speaking of... So that's my rant on Elaine. As for the father, um... The father I genuinely feel pity for. I, I do too. It takes a lot for a man to reach that level of helplessness. I think he feels ashamed a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and... I think that shame is one of the driving human emotions, and so I can't really... It's a very powerful one. It really, really is. And so I didn't really come out of this chapter with a big opinion on her dad. 
I think the thing that really jumped out to me about her father is that he just really seems to have given up. And I think your yeah. point about shame is such a good one. Because yeah. shame is a very, very powerful emotion. It is. And every single person who is listening to this, everyone knows what that feels like. Yes. And so, again, like rereading these chapters for the first, I guess for the second time, third time, prepping for this, it makes you see her family members in a slightly different light. Because mm-hmm. when you first read, I think we were so excited when we first read this. Like, I definitely didn't read it as closely as I should have and yeah. didn't really internalize everything. Thanks. So, moving on to chapter three, we get to go to the town the town for the first time and we yes. the children of okay so do you say the children of the blessed or the children of the blessed I say the blessed I say the blessed it's, I don't think and there's a right I don't think there's a right or wrong so these children of the blessed uh, fanatic fools who worship the high faith this is kind of the first introduction into humans that don't hate the fairies and so far that's all we've and they are treated institute. very poorly by their fellow called lots of horrible names and it also makes me wonder, like, how does one become, like, a fae fanatic when the entire community that you live in hates the fae? Well, and there's also so little known about them, like we were talking about before. You know, it's so shrouded. Like, when was the last time anyone even saw? It's very interesting to me that everyone still believes that fairies are very, very real, but no one has seen one in so long. And so much of it is now shrouded in mystery. Yeah. But no one doubts their existence, which I do think is interesting and you either you're either terrified of them and you hate them or you're this very small radical offshoot of society who believes that they are benevolent masters yeah and then i think the most exciting part of this chapter was meeting the mercenary (gasps) that was really exciting to reread i'm very excited for the spoiler section because i want to get into i want to get into all the things that she said and when i read it for the first time when you I read it for the away character for me the first time. And when you read it for the first time, you think you you do get important context. So on the surface level, you are getting all of this really rich information about what is going on around us and, and you start to is, feel fear that is what about I something that is coming. About this interaction mm-hmm. was because it the, was a natural event exactly. that was happening that was giving you and the character information that you both needed in the same moment but for different reasons yes exactly and then i thought it was kind of funny Feyre felt like a parent giving her kids money to like go away and like do something while she goes off to shag isaac hill in the barn, shag isaac hill in the barn. <laughs> so we know Feyre is sexually active very naughty <laughs> you know and i think again this just goes back to her isolation she feels so alone and these stolen moments that she has with Isaac is just I think she's just really craving some kind of human connection yeah and I did notice that while rereading this it was like she you are the closest you can physically get to someone Mm. while you are having sex she is emotionally like completely cut off from him yeah she doesn't Doesn't feel feel anything anything. while that's happening that's that's again so sad really sad yeah loving that she has contraceptive tea it's really important that everyone is using protection in the fantasy realm. Like, Again, rules. World building that we are getting. This is a rule. But this, this is the is, way things work in the fantasy world because it's fantasy. And, and this and is they, one of the yeah, reasons we love fantasy because is, you don't have to abide by the rules of this world. And it's not even just this world. This is a rule in all fantasy tropes. 
in this genre, there was always a contraceptive tea. That's of some true. Sort. Yes, I mean you can even look at House of the Dragon. Yes, <laughs> moon tea, moon tea, moon tea. It's always a tea. It is literally always because tea is just. It's very witchy, isn't it? A cup of tea. It is very witchy. A cup of tea. A brew. I did have to have a little giggle. I was like, oh, yes. The tea. The tea. (laughs) Do you think we're in, like, medieval time? Because I imagine this as being... My dad asked me this, actually, last night. I was telling... I was like, I'm so excited. We're filming our podcast tomorrow. And he was like, so... Is it, like, Vikings era? And the answer is, I don't actually know. I actually think I am picturing something a little bit more, like... The Last Kingdom era. I'm thinking like burlap peasant blouses. Yeah. That kind of situation. I mean, listen, it's funny because there's no running water and there's not electricity, but there's contraception. So they eventually get back to Fury's home and this is when we finally get the beast bursting forth from... I'm sorry. Now that we're talking about the beast, I could barely rein it in during the summaries. We have to acknowledge the beast in the room. Yes. And by that I mean the beauty and the beast trope Indeed. in the room. Akachaw is listed as a like a, a young adult fantasy play on beauty and the beast. Yes, because it has become a little bit of a trope. Yeah. Yes. And in the spoiler section we'll go into all the reasons. Yes why this is partially true and partially not true. It was just very, very funny with the feline form bursting into the house and the elk horn. I have tried so many times to go go bit by bit and put this creature together in my head. And it's just still very tough. Because elk because elk horns don't spiral. And I'm sorry, the small child in me that read animal encyclopedias for fun is coming out the same way when people say lions are the king of the jungle. Like, they don't live in the jungle! You heard it here. They don't. There are species of African antelopes who have spirally (laughs) horns. But they are not elk. Okay, this was an interesting scene, though, because as kind of chaotic and scary as it was, there was one quote that I really liked, which was Farah thinking... I knew with a sudden uncoiling clarity that Nesta would buy Elaine time to run. That is a very cool moment. Like she's having all of this fear and stress, but all of a sudden she's like, okay, I know at least Elaine is going to have time to run because Nesta will make sure of it. And I thought that that was a very interesting little tidbit, which we can talk more about. And once again, I just have to say a tough look for (laughs) Elaine because at least Nesta, like grabs her sister and pulls her behind her and is like gonna go down fighting and first. I kind of I have this and you in my still head. see Elaine just like Elaine just looking around being like what? what's what? happening a lot of focus on the jade eyes with the beast yes and you just always know in these in these books when there is focus on something's eyes or someone's eyes that yeah. it's gonna be trouble down the line I don't even feel like no that's a spoiler. spoilers. That's not a spoiler. I it's if you read the blurb. I certainly had a hunch of maybe what was coming when I read it, but I'm not gonna say in okay. this moment. In that case, I'll redirect my thoughts. And then we get to the physical journey to the wall, which starts in chapter Ooh, five. Yes, I did also want to note they exit the cabin, mm-hmm. the hut, and. There is a horse there 
saddled already, which I find Isabel to be very interesting because mm. it would seem to me that if a beast traveled all this way with a horse saddled, that he was always intending on returning with someone who would need to be on horseback. Well, he is intending on returning with her because... No, it's interesting because originally he comes in and he's all acting like he's going to kill whoever killed the wolf. It's a loophole. Mm. The treaty demands a life for a life. He finds the loophole and... I just think it's very interesting. It would seem to me that that was always the intent, which is a stark contrast to the picture that has been painted of the Fae. The first clue that we get that the beast is not as fearsome as we think is right. that the horse clearly respects him. Feyre says it seems like the horse bows mm. to the beast before she climbs aboard. Exactly. You definitely start to pick up on these clues that this beast is not... All is not what it seems. There was definitely a lot of that in these first, yeah. these first five chapters. Yes. Um, also, and a, just a hilarious final note, that <laughs> the beast magically sedates Feyre for the entire journey because he just doesn't want to talk to her. <laughs> I mean... Not as... So, not she's very nice. Well, I mean, how much does... How her social skills... Maybe haven't been put to the test. Okay, but all test. she a did lot was over the ask last him if he had a name. That's fair. That's a good point. Do you have a name? And he just knocks her out. Very, very tough looks. It's a little bit rude. We do actually, another another important note is that we do discover that magic smells and tastes metallic-y. Yes. Yes. She has a faint metallic taste in her, on the roof of her mouth, I think is the way she describes it. Mm-hmm. And then there is just nothing. So... A fitting way to close, I think. And now, this is your warning to turn off the Warning! If you have not read past chapters 1 through 5 of A Court of Thorns and Roses, if you do not want spoilers about A Court of Thorns and Roses, Throne of Glass, or Crescent City, please exit, exit the podcast now. Please come back for the next episode. But please, please, please stop listening now. We are about to spoil... So many things. Let's begin. Okay, great. Oh, wow. The foreshadowing in these chapters, Jessica. It's, oh, it's so crazy, and it's also so hard for me not to call the beast Tamlin. It's really, really tough. But we did well. Right. We have not said the name Tamlin once. That's great. I'm super proud of us. Give me that bag. I first of all want to talk about the paint that covers the cottage. Go for it. I just... I didn't even notice the first time reading this through, like, as in, until Rise said everything, that mm. that was the situation. Like, well, her, because the painting is boring. The painting is boring. Okay. I'm sorry. When I was, even when I read it for the first time, I was like, okay, she Thank paints. you so much, because I was <laughs> rereading these. I'm trying to be emotionally invested in the painting, because I know it's a really big part of Frost and Maybe Starlight. Maybe it's just because and you and I aren't painters. Artists. But we're artists in other ways. I'm but what if, but think about how ne- how much Nesta loves music and loves to dance. Like, oh, what if we were in, me, what if we were in Nesta's head and she was out in the forest and she was like, I forgot what it was like to just be filled with a piece of music. 
that is something that you and I would absolutely connect to and be moved by. I think, unfortunately, it's just because I've never been a painting art person that I I really struggled to connect with her on that front. Me too. And yet again, another instance of me feeling like SJM was telling me, not showing me, that I should care about this Mm. part of Feyre's personality. And it is such a huge part of her world. It is. Later on in the book. It is. And we learn that this is kind of what saves her in a way. Like, this is where she finds peace. And I'm just reading it being like, I don't care. I'm like, okay, she painted the dresser. That's really sad. She has no friends and nothing else to do, so she paints stuff. But we love that it is a starry sky. It's the flames for me. It's the flames. Are we going to talk about the flowers on Elaine's drawer? Because I think that they speak for themselves. I don't even know if we need to I can't, talk about it I anymore. can't get into that right um, now. Or we're going to be didn't on even here touch for another hour. On the fact that Vera is illiterate. I know that it will. It was, <laughs> Sorry. I know that it funny. will show up in the next few chapters. Not so funny. We have time. But this does play a part in her role under the mountain and in later books. Yeah. So, well, the only clue you get, really, is when Nesta calls her an ignorant peasant. Oh my god, is Nesta is so, so mean! mean. <laughs> She's so mean. She's such a bitch. I love her. I do too. Yeah, Silver Flames was an incredible journey. That character development was Unreal. truly stunning. Unreal. Um, and I really, I'm holding out hope that she can do the same thing for me and Elaine. And do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that maybe since we haven't had Elaine's point of view book yet, hopefully we get it. We didn't love Nesta before we read Silver Flames. Like she did, she had a character but I was in Wings and Ruin. We had, we had some emotional investment in her. We haven't had really anything like that with Elaine yet which is maybe why when you're rereading it and you're looking for things to attach yourself to Mm. and be invested in I'm still struggling with her maybe because we don't this hasn't been finalized yet I mean I'm struggling mostly with Elaine because she has jilted (laughs) Lucian for Grayson is that his name I think it was Grayson who like what how dare you other foreshadowings that we get, we get our first mention of Claire Better. Oh, yes, I did notice that. I, I was like, <gasps> no. And it's so funny. Astrid loves to drop these little Easter eggs. She, she is the no Easter idea. egg queen. Every day is Easter when you're reading an SJM book. But I think the thing we really want to talk about in this foreshadowing section is the mercenary. I do want to talk about the mercenary. Oh, my God. When she says, up to you, girl. I just about had a coronary. I was not okay. Okay, but Tamlin also calls her girl in the beast form. Not really. He says it once and that's it. Like, for me, it was her description of her features mm-hmm. and the whole mystique that went hand in hand with that character. Like, where did she come from? How does she know all this stuff? How has she survived? How has she survived this illness? And then she goes, up to you, girl. And I'm like, oh! I mean, it's not Amarin, but do you know what I mean? I yes. Just, like, my, my little antenna just went, wee. It's so funny that you immediately jumped to there because my mind immediately jumped to Crescent City for some reason. What were you thinking of? Uh, it made me think of Fury. Fury, yeah. And when, when I read it again last night, I actually thought of the bite that Bryce has on her leg because the mercenary was bit. Yeah. And she says... Because I, I read it a couple of times. She was she said that she 
battled a fairy that was nothing like a Martax. It was, it was, she says it was much darker, much more terrifying. And it made me think of the demons from hell. And when Bryce got bit by the poisonous demon, the poison stayed in her leg. And this mercenary. Oh my god, I just got chills. And this mercenary has spidery black. And she's like, yeah, the healers told me the poison is just there. Like, I've healed, but the poison is still there. And it made me think of. Oh my god. It made me think of the demons from hell. I don't think it is fury anymore, but I. That was something that popped into my head at first. Yeah, because the way that she describes the mercenary physically is not the same it's as It's not Fury. the same as Fury Astar. Actually, another thing that I just thought of, that very first chapter when Feyre is just kind of existing in the mm-hmm. woods and the snow is kind of gently falling, mm-hmm. it's becoming night. That starry night just reminded me of this kind of still, peaceful... That's so interesting. No, I love that. It just kind of reminded me of that feeling that she feels when she's with Bryce. I think, I like that. I actually, I had a similar moment where I was contrasting that scene, and particularly the scene where she talks about it had been so long since I had allowed myself to appreciate anything beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know? And And she's talking about, you know, new grass coming through the snow or even like snow falling in the woods. It made me think of Starfall. Because because the that's really the first moment where we get to experience Feyre feeling joy for the first time yeah. ever really. Because when she's when she's in the spring court with Tamlin, she's She's shocked by everything, and she's certainly awed by everything. She does start to feel happiness, and she does start to feel lighter. But the only other moment, really, there is a moment, I think, at Midsummer, where she drinks, she gets very drunk, and she has this, she has this moment of euphoria. But it's different. It's the effects of the wine, really, that are that are happening. Starfall is really the first moment where you get to be with her as she marvels at this beautiful, incredible, and she is moved and she feels joy and she is so, so deeply emotionally affected by this beautiful, joyful thing that she's experiencing. And so to me, it was such a stark contrast to the apathy that she has forced herself into to survive in this moment in her life. I think that's why that sometimes I can forgive the internal dialogue that I don't fully understand. Moments mm-hmm. because when we get those moments yeah. where SJM is just so good at conveying to the reader yeah. the core emotions of what a character... I mean, yeah. how many times have you cried reading all her books? Countless. I can't. I mean, Throne of Glass. I, I just was, the, with Kingdom of Ash. I just wept basically from start <laughs> to finish. I just. I oh mean, my god. so many times, like the moments when her characters have those moments of clarity mm-hmm. and those big emotional shifts. Everyone, whether or not it's the same situation that you've been, you you know what that feels like to have that big emotional yes. moment where something yes. in your core being. Turns on its axis 
mm-hmm. and you all changed. And she is so good at writing about that. I, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the incredible things about the fantasy genre is that so much of it is allegory. And through these characters, they're experiencing all the same emotions we experience, but for some reason, when you experience them through a character that is completely and totally removed from your version of reality, you're a little bit freer to just feel those things. Oh, I love the way you put that. And it's so cathartic, you know? Yes, it is. It is cathartic. It's really cathartic to read about it. Because there's no pressure, and, and you're you know not expected. Is? You're not expected to explain why you feel a certain way about this. You're just having a moment with these characters, and you're experiencing these human emotions. And you know what it also is? It is because everything you are just saying is happening, and it's also escapism. Yeah, it allows you to feel all of that in a world that is not your own. Yes, it takes the pressure. It takes the pressure off. And you and I, who were both living in La La Land for our entire <laughs> childhood, yes. and finally we have La La Land for adults, and then, we also have, and then we also have a healthy way of expressing our emotions while we're reading yeah. something. Sometimes fantasy is just better. It really is. Mortal men just don't do it for me anymore. Listen, mortal men ain't shit. <laughs> I, you I stand by that. <laughs> One thing we did notice as well, just to give yourself some little food for thought, Elaine is an anagram for Aelin. When I saw that on TikTok, I had to, like, lie down. (laughs) Because as much as I really sort of don't fuck with Elaine, I live for Aelin Calanthinius. So, for those of you that are new, which is everyone, unless you've watched our trailer... Jessica literally is Aelin. I was I reading... Let me make something very clear. I've never wielded a sword. <laughs> so uh, you've wielded bubble swords. Okay, but I could never take anyone in a fight, and I feel like Aelin's physical abilities are a very big part of who she is. That's true. You leave that to me. And I could never... I'm not a fighter, physically. Yeah. I think about ways to inflict long-term damage Let me strategically rephrase that. Let upon me re- rephrase people, this. Upon you, my enemies. You... And that is why you are Aelin. What you just said right there. <laughs> and we're both stunningly beautiful women. Exactly. <laughs> if you've made it this far in this episode, first of all, we love you. Congratulations. Second of all, our vision for this podcast long term is that we will go roughly five chapters at a time all the way through the Akatar series, all the way through Crescent City, two books, mm. and then whew, all the way through Throne of Glass. So strap in, folks. You're in for a long ride. And with that, Jessica, should we wrap up? Really, really appreciate you guys listening. We had the best time. Was this drunk. Is so much fun. We, yeah, <laughs> we got a little tipsy. We got to talk about our favorite books. We're so excited to hear from you all, your thoughts, your feelings, your predictions. And we will be back very soon with our next episode. In the spring court. Let's go. Woo! All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Next time. Bye.